Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast, a podcast where we bring on multifamily investors and discuss real estate and their journeys to financial freedom. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Kerwin Donis. Brent Kawakami is the VP of Acquisitions for Think Multifamily, a multifamily investment company that provides opportunities to invest in B and C class apartment buildings and cash flowing markets. Brent is one of our good friends and mentors. He has so much knowledge and value to offer us in our audience. Though our entire conversation was rich with information, you'll want to stick around to the end to learn why Brent loves multifamily over other asset classes and how he deals with risk when it comes to multifamily investing. Here we go. Thank you for tuning in to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kerwin and Kenneth Donis. Today on the show, we'll be having Brent Kawakami. Brent, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience? How's it going? You guys doing all right? Yeah, we're doing well. Hope you're uh, having a good day. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, yeah so um, uh, Brent Kawakami, I'm with uh, Think Multifamily. Um, we're a multifamily um, firm based out of Dallas, Texas, as you guys know. Um, me personally, so um, uh, my title may say VP of Acquisitions, but the reality, like most small businesses, is you end up wearing a lot of different hats, <laughs> obviously. So um, I may do acquisitional support, um, but I also do asset management, investor relations, as well as um, I get to be part-time IT guy, part-time marketing guy, part-time go-move heavy stuff, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So um yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely, uh, definitely um, uh, every day's a every day's a new day. Um, but my background before I got into um, <clears throat> what I'm doing now, so I'm a I'm a former um, electrical engineer. I was your typical climb corporate ladder type of person. I never had a entrepreneurial bone in my body growing up, as weird as that is. And then a um, couple years into my career, um, you know, like pretty much everybody you talk to uh, reads that purple book that everyone gets a hold of, right? Ends up being kind of like the the red pill, you know, <laughs> into the matrix type of thing. And so um, started on uh, looking at all these different other options just because I, I I didn't want to do, do the corporate thing for 40 years type of thing. So I got into all kinds of stuff, um, you know, dividend stock investing, peer-to-peer lending, starting online businesses. Um, I got into, and I still do this today, infinite banking, um, if you're familiar with that. And then obviously real estate. So um, started with single family rentals, and this was back in like 2011 timeframe. So started doing that, single family rentals here on the side uh, in the Dallas. Transitioned to multifamily, started investing passively. This was around 2015 ish um ended up meeting um my partner and um, founder of think mark kenny in about 2016 um really liked him and his wife as people and really connected with them got more active got more invested in multifamily and then um, a few years later ended up leaving my uh, engineering work to do the real estate full-time and that's where we are today so Awesome. Um, and I'd love to find out how you kind of met Mark. Was that like a, at an event or were you guys in the same group? So I met Mark actually through another syndicator um, that I was investing with. Um, <clears throat> I invested passively with other syndicators um, before I ever met him. 
and uh, met him at uh, an event of another syndicators. Um, I had known of him just because what you find in this multifamily world is that um, it's big, but it's not that big. So a successful investor here in the Dallas area. Um, and so, yeah, met him in person, connected with him a couple of times on the phone, ended up going to his events and yeah, the rest is history as I guess, as they say. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and to kind of go into your partnership with Mark and kind of getting into your first deal, uh, do you mind walking us through that process in regards to how that looked? Uh, first deal or just kind yeah. of, yeah. First deal and um, maybe how you guys plan on splitting it up and um, yeah. that's something that I would love to learn. If you don't yeah. Mind. Yeah. So, um, uh, I start, so I started investing passively first when I got in multifamily and this is with other syndicators, um, not with my partner Mark now. And I think that was good as a first way in to the space just because you kind of get a feel for how this is supposed to go. You know, it's kind of like you get to ride the airplane before you fly the jet, you know, <laughs> which is kind of a good thing. Um, and uh, so I did that. And the other part too is I think it, the styles and the way that different operators and syndicators do things from everything from you know how they communicate you know how they verbalize things the the frequency that they do those things um and whatnot and so you can kind of see good and things that you like and things that you don't like um ultimately for when you're putting together deals or raising capital or whatever um so that's kind of how i initially got started now from an active standpoint um first property was 100 plus units um, I found the property through a broker relationship originally. Um, coincidentally, um, at the time Mark had seen this deal like a year prior, um, through a different brokerage actually. And at the time it was actually priced like a million dollars higher when he looked at it. So he liked the deal, but not the price, so to speak. And so a year later, you know, I think the, the seller's expectations had become more, um, you know, went through sort of a process, typical process of bidding on it, didn't get it the first time originally. And then um, there ended up being, we can get into the story if you want, but long story short, first group didn't close, came back to us. Um, and, um, you know, we ended up getting awarded it. And so um, our partnership, you were asking how kind of that worked out. So um, I was a newer, newer, op- you know, newer syndicated new operator. I had experience in single family and and being passive, but not as active. Um, and so that was where Mark came in to kind of be the mentor and look over my shoulder and, and that type of thing. Um, and yeah, so, you know, we kind of partnered that way um, and, and went, went about it there. So that's great. And you mentioned that um, you were in other investments, like I think you said online businesses. Yeah. Um, could you clarify, are you still involved in that or are you just hundred percent invested in real estate? No. So I got out of product thing. So this was back when like, um, so this was back when like, um, niche sites and Google ads and all that stuff was like newer. So I did a bunch of those things. Um, I actually sold off one. Um, I had like a large publisher approach me and I sold off, um, one of those businesses to them. Um, I don't do any of those actively today. Um, but I do do some of the same things I, uh, since then. So like I mentioned, um, I do infinite banking, which is kind of a core foundational strategy for me, even when I, even with the real estate, um, as, as weird as it sounds, I still have investments and I just got back into the market like last year. (laughs) I didn't have stocks before, but when, uh, I guess as they say, buy low, sell high. So when things tanked last year, I got back in. 
I do have some crypto. I do, um, you know, have some precious metals. Um, but I would say real estate's obviously kind of the largest portion of what I do now. Um, I don't do any of the side online hustle businesses anymore. Though. Awesome. Then. Um, it, I'm assuming that real estate is your top or favorite. Um, is that the case? And if so, why? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, majority of it's the real estate stuff. I think a lot of it is kind of all the reasons that most people like just, Hey, it's a tangible asset. It's real. You can touch it. It's got, you know, it makes the way I always liked it was in the way it was kind of, I learned it was, you know, it makes you money in like half a dozen different ways. Right. So, you know, obviously there's cash flow. obviously there's appreciation. Um, and the nice thing with multifamily is, you know, you have both market appreciation plus you have the ability to force appreciation in essence by affecting the value, which is kind of, you know, is, is kind of one of the advantages of multifamily over single family. You know, there's the tax advantages, there's, you know, pay down a prince, you know, you're paying down principal over time. Right. Um, in some instances. And then, um, you know, the other part too, is it also, um, you know, everyone's concerned about inflation and things like that. So there's also sort of a hedge there in terms of both on the income side. So, you know, obviously with rents and things like that, but also on a debt side too. Um, and um, I like the term, if you list, there's a podcast by a guy named Jason Hartman. He's actually a single family guy. Um, but the term I like he uses is called inflation induced debt destruction, but it's in essence like um, in inflationary environments, um, your debt, is actually an asset if that's as weird as that sounds because you know you're paying back uh you're paying back your debt with uh, lower value dollars in essence so um anyway so all that story short yeah i mean real estate's kind of the largest portion of of you know what i you know what i'm focused on invested in um but you know at the same time too i think there's benefits for having other uh diversification you know with what we do at multifamily there, you can have diversification within that asset class too, right? So like whether that's between different markets, you know, so like, hey, you're in properties in where you guys are at in the Carolinas or in Georgia or in Texas, right? So you kind of have market diversification. You can have diversification in terms of business plan. So like, hey, one property I want to go into is kind of like walk in the door. I don't have to do a whole lot, you know, Um Versus, hey, you know, heavy value add, property's 40% occupied, it's a fixer upper, got to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? So you kind of have diversity, you can have diversity there. And then you also have diversity in terms of operators too, right? Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, hey, you know, maybe there's a couple people that you like investing with, or you like their style. And so you can, you know, maybe they don't always have a deal going, right? You can invest with someone else. And so there's, you can kind of, avenues within the asset class which is another nice part yeah i definitely agree on all those points that you touched on um so of course you are vp of the acquisitions um so that comes with a lot of underwriting and looking at a lot of deals i'm, I'm yeah. assuming right yeah <laughs> so what is like the first thing that you look at when you first receive a deal whether it's from either the group or the a broker that has sent you a deal yeah so i think when it comes to underwriting, there's kind of a lot of nuances, right? And way more to get into than we could hear. Um, I think, and then everybody has different definitions of conservative because everyone likes to say they're, they underwrite conservatively, but you know, that means different things to different people. And yeah. your definition of risk is different from mine. 
Um, and then too, like, I think some of it is also um, who the operator and the experience level and everything is as well. Cause like what I may see, what you may see as risky may not be risky to me for whatever. And that may be completely right. Um, the example I've heard or like is um, there's a, a real well-known um, tax, tax CPA guy. Um, he's in the rich dad family, Tom Rowe, right? But he talks about how like, you know, you put, you know, put me in like one of those NASCAR cars on a track, like really risky, right? <laughs> but you put like, you know, Danica Patrick or whoever, I don't know who's like a racer now, but one of those people in that, not as risky, right? So I say all that in a sense of it, it's different tolerances for different people. Um, but when it comes to like, when we're looking at stuff, so like, you know, if it's kind of in-house quote unquote, and like it's from a broker, um, it kind of varies. Um, I think some of it's defining your criteria initially up front in terms of, you know, market and size and what you're looking for. Um, the reality is there's just too much stuff that's out there to look at that, um, you know, if you look at every single thing you get sent, it's going to take forever. You're going to waste a lot of time um, in essence. And um, I think that's where like building relationships with people within industry and brokers um, becomes valuable because at a certain point, you know, you're not looking at everything that gets sent to you and then people know the kind of stuff, um, to send you. Right. So like, we're fortunate with, I think where, you know, we get sent a lot of stuff, but like, we generally will not look at everything. Right. We'll look at things where, you know, oftentimes a broker will send us something and like, they specifically want us to look at this right. More genuinely. Right. Or, um, they'll really make it a point to where, Hey, this one you might want to look at. So that helps a lot in terms of sifting stuff down. Um, <clears throat> the other part too, is like with our group, you know, there's at least some level of homework done. So we know it, it at least hopefully fits some of the box that <laughs> at least we do. Um, that's not to say, you know, that could be the case. It could be different for that individual, but um, you know, there's a certain level of like, Hey, at least someone's kind of put a practical eye to it. Um, and then we get into like detailed, you know, sort of underwriting stuff, right? So, you know, common things would be like income growth or assumptions. And, you know, there's all these crazy things with cap rates and um, exit prices and your break-even analysis and, and all that. And so obviously there's a lot of nuances um, there um, that you can get into sort of like the numbers aspect. Um, and then there's also sort of the intangible piece of it as well. Cause I think the other part too is, as you look at a lot of deals um, or as you look at a lot of deals, you'll kind of get for lack of a better term, gut feels of like, okay, you know, this one looks better than the other. This one you think would work out based on this pricing type of thing. So a lot of, a lot of wormhole we could go down, but <laughs> hopefully that's kind of a big picture, big picture answer. So. No, yeah, definitely. And one thing that I know that you use like a quick, quick and dirty analyzer just to kind of, gauge which properties are, are worth looking more into. Um, do you mind kind of going into some of the benefits of having a quick and dirty process and just describing to our audience if they're not aware of what that is? Do you yeah. mind just describing what that is for you guys? Yeah. So we kind of have a quick and dirty process where it's meant to be like a five, 10 minute check. And really it's more of like a sanity check. Whereas like, okay, I, I, I had this property sent to me. I'm just going to do a couple of different checks really quick. 
and it, it's really sort of a yay, yay or nay. Like, should I look even spend more time looking at this? Right. So like, let's just say you get an email blast from a broker, great property coming out now, 200 units, value add, best deal ever, you know, type of thing. So you can take that right really quickly go in and really you're looking at a few things. You're just looking at, um, the gross potential rent or GPR, um, which is essentially, okay, how much, um, you know, in theory, over the course of a year, what is the maximum amount of rent in theory? If everybody was paying, everybody was at market rate, right? Adding a, a th- couple rows of thumb, like, okay, I know I got to have some level of vacancy and some level of, of you know, not everyone's going to pay on time, right? Um, so throw a, a generic percentage on there, take that out. There's some level of other income. So, um, you know, whether that's, utilities that people are getting billed back for late fees, pet fees, et cetera. Take all that. I have some level, just generic target income. Um, throw some rule of thumbs on a 50% of your income and expenses. It can vary widely. It can definitely be higher that and some metros can definitely be lower than that. But generically speaking, you know, um, let's just take a, a rule of thumb there, subtract out some things and then, you know, okay, based on that, um, with my rehab, right? Maybe it, and you can, you know, you're not digging into it. You're just using some rules of thumb, but after that, it's sort of a, Hey, is, am I even like anywhere near the ballpark of what, um, the pricing that's being asked for on this? And if it's nowhere near, you're like, okay, I don't need to spend any more time on this, right? Just move on. Or if it is then, okay, yeah, maybe I'll dig in and start to look a little further and do a little more analysis or do a little more homework or ask some questions of the broker. Um, it's really meant to just be a five, 10 minute sanity check. And that way, um, you know, you're not spending a lot of time, um, you know, looking at every single property that comes across your desk. Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads me to my next question, which is what uh, unit size do you guys target? And I know that you guys kind of tend to go larger. So uh, how is, how is the level of risk different uh, as you increase unit size? How yeah. does it change? So as a general, so to give you a breadth of the portfolio with things, so we have like 7,800 units right now and it, the, the number constantly fluctuates, right? Cause we're buying and selling. We have like half, there's like half a dozen properties right now that are under contract. So that number increased, but we're also selling like half a dozen properties. Um, but to the unit size question, so the smallest port deal in the whole portfolio is like 60 units, six zero. The largest one is like 560, so quite a big range. And then one of the deals that's going to close later this month is 700 units. So really like massive, um, you know, kind of ends of the spectrum. Now, reality is on average, most of the properties we're doing are somewhere in the 100 to 200 unit range. Just as a general statement, I think the average, if you were to average them across the entire portfolio is like 170, just give or take. Um, on an average basis. <clears throat> and so um, generally speaking, that tends to be the box, you know, that most deals and, you know, it may depend on market in terms of pricing, you know, just on a price per door perspective, but you know, most deals are somewhere in the 5 million to 25 million range in that unit count. And um, so, you know, one of the reasons that we kind of stick to that is just because, you know, when you get kind of sub 100 units, that's where your economy of scale starts to run out a little bit. Um, both in terms of like one, one of the advantages of these larger properties is you have full time staff, 
right? And the revenue it puts off can't afford that. Um, you know, whereas like if you have a 20, 30, 40 unit, it's much harder. You're kind of in that uh, weird purgatory when you're a little less than that. Like, you know, uh, Kenneth, you and I are looking at one, right? It's like 80-ish, 80, 90 units. So you're like yeah. right in that range <laughs> where um, it you can still have that full-time management and everything, but it costs you more um, on a per-door basis um, as, a, as a general statement. Um, so that's kind of one advantage, you know, that you mentioned before. Um, you know, the other kind of on the flip side of that same discussion, right? So we have properties where they're in that 150 to 170 range and you can still run it like 100 units as a general statement just because, you know, a lot of your, uh, you know, if you're paying for marketing, it's really the same if it's 80 units or 150 units, right? As a general statement, right? If I have one person in the office and one person has maintenance, you know, it's not like I'm necessarily going up a level, you know, and needing another person all the time. So there's some economy scale kind of in, even within those range, those ranges. Um, but you have all the other aspects, whether it's like, you know, especially compared to smaller products where, hey, if one person moves out on a hundred unit property, it not to say it's not a big deal, but you know, you're not, you know, it's not like a house where, you know, you're hundred percent off vacant right? when someone moves out. Um, so you have some economies, you have some economies there. Um, obviously pricing becomes better for you just cause you can have, um, you know, a little more purchasing power in, in that regard and, you know, a host of other different, um, benefits as well. But yeah, that's kind of the box that we play in. Awesome. And, uh, I, w- I would love to kind of dive into some of the KPIs that you, you experienced, um, as an underwriter, mm-hmm. like, do you mind touching on how many deals you look at? maybe every week and how many otherwise you submit based off on, on that. And then how many are actually accepted just because uh, as a, I don't know, obviously our audience isn't aware, but we had a deal fully subscribed. Like literally I was planning on helping out with the deal and I had no opportunity just cause it, it went so fast. Um, and obviously it's because uh, these deals are very hard to find. Right. So yeah. these are amazing opportunities that a lot of people are looking and uh, it just takes a lot of deals to actually find the right one. So do you kind of yeah. just mind touching on the uh, KPIs? that yeah. um, you've, you've kind of seen um, in your business? So, and it varies for sure. Um, we've had people in, within our group, I mean, we've had, I mean, you typically, you, the stat you always hear is like, hey, you look at 100 deals to find the one because inevitably what happens is, and, and it's varying levels of looks, right? Some of those 100 maybe don't even pass that quick and dirty test we talked about earlier, right? So maybe I'm just, I'm just, you know, kind of anecdotally saying, you know, then maybe a hundred come across your desk, right? And half of that are, you know, you don't even look, they don't even pass that first quick and dirty test, right? And then half of those, then when you dig in deeper, you're like, okay, I dug, I did a little deeper analysis or more homework. Half of those don't work. So throw that on the window. Then after that, maybe I dug a little more, or maybe I toured the property. Maybe I got a property management budget. Maybe I got insurance quotes, et cetera. And then half of those don't work out. <laughs> uh, so now, you know, where am I at now? I did half and half and half. So I'm at like a dozen deals right now that maybe I offered on. And you're never getting everyone you offer on, right? So inevitably, you, you know, that's how you kind of come to the one you actually get, right? So, so that's kind of generically, you know, kind of the story you always hear. I know that sounds kind of extreme, obviously. Um, you know, our hit rate, at least for some of the stuff we look at now is a little, probably a little better than that. Just cause like I said, 
when you have the dictate a more toward what you're looking at, um, it's not as bad, but that's definitely, especially when you're starting out, um, you're kind of going through those motions and a lot of it's just reps, you know, um, in terms of also some of it's, you have to kind of look at that many to kind of get an eye for, um, you know, what's good, what's bad. You notice patterns. Oh, okay. I've seen this type of issue before that type of thing. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the, maybe the numbers, so to speak. Uh, is that, is that what you're looking for? Yeah, no. Awesome. That's similar to what we've experienced. Uh, Kenny's the one that underwrites and um, all day, every day underwriting. And it's, it's, uh, it's not like we're submitting LOIs every single day, you know, so it's definitely a numbers game. Um, yeah. To kind of go into our express round, I'll just ask you a few questions. Yeah. Um, my first question, what is the biggest mistake that you've made in real estate and what did it teach you? Biggest mistake? Um, I would say, so I had one, this is back in my single family days, actually. So I had a, and the mistake was I didn't listen to my wife. <laughs> um, uh, so I had a single family home and this was about the time I was starting to sell stuff off. So, so I don't own the single family anymore. Um, and I had, a, I had one that came vacant and I had to go find a new resident. And my wife was kind of telling me, hey, I think you're at the time where you probably should sell it. And to me at the time, I was like, well, it's actually as weird as it sounds. It's easier for me to go find a new tenant and put them in. Um, as it turns out, that was the worst resident or tenant I ever had. <laughs> now, it wasn't that bad, right? It wasn't terrible. It, um, but in retrospect, that was like, oh, I should have sold that thing and not deal with the headache of that. Um, and so the mistake there was not listening to my wife in that instance. And a lot of it was just not that she was involved in the actual business asset, but being able to like intangibly read sort of the emotions and the stress and the, those types of things, which I think, but there's also a level of, you know, of headspace that this stuff takes up. Right. And so I think that's something to be cognizant of or pay attention to. Yeah. Awesome. Um, next question. What is your favorite book? And if you have one that you'd like to tailor towards your business life, as well as your uh, personal life, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so I really like one I'm reading right now. It's called Winning. Um, it's by Tim Grover. It's actually a follow-up book to another one I really like, which is called Relentless that he wrote. Long story short, he's was the private trainer for, so in my day it was Jordan. For you guys, it was probably Kobe or I don't know, younger. <laughs> you guys are maybe younger than that too, or Dwayne Wade and stuff. Uh, so, um, but he was a private trainer and um, it, it's a mindset thing. Um, with basically how how these high achievers um, achieve what they are. And it's definitely way more practical and way more, it's sort of that mentality of what it takes to kind of be focused and, and win. In essence, those are a couple I really like. Um, maybe some others I would just throw in there. Um, there's one called Happy Money that I really like. Um, and basically the premise behind that is it's sort of like how you go about maximizing what you spend your money on to bring the most happiness to you. And it sounds very um, obvious, but it's one of those things where you not, most people don't think about or intentional about. Um, so that's one. And then I'd say the other one that comes to mind for me is called getting things done. It's a really, it's a much older book, um, but it's probably the one I would say I read it back when I was in my corporate job. Um, you know, so 12 years ago. And um, it's probably one of very few books I can say I still do things on a day by day basis today from that book that long ago. So yeah. 
Yeah, awesome. We read Relentless as well. I'll check out Winning after this. I love yeah. Relentless. Yeah, it just came out like a couple weeks yeah. ago, but it's good. I'm not done with it, but I like it. No, okay, definitely we'll check that out. Um, and to kind of go into a piece of advice that you would give someone, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received or that you would give out? I think the one thing that comes to mind for me, especially in this investing space, is sort of having self-awareness. And what I mean by that is most folks don't think about to themselves, okay, what do I like? What do I not like? What am I good at? What am I bad at? And most folks aren't honest about that, right? Um, the reality is that, you know, we're very bad at like self-assessing ourselves, right? And so you kind of have to be intentional about thinking about that. And so that may dictate, you know, from an investor perspective, what areas am I good at or should I focus on, right? If you're someone who's, you know, into spreadsheets and numbers and you hate talking to people, well, maybe that should gear you toward a certain, you know, piece in the piece in this business, right? Maybe you're the other way around. Maybe you're the person who, you know, the spreadsheet hurts your head and, but, you know, put yourself in a room, you can talk to anybody. Well, there's another role that you could potentially fill. Um, some people are more geared toward, hey, look, you're better off being a passive investor. Um, and other people are geared toward being uh, a, um, you know, a, an active investor. So I think really the biggest thing there would be, you know, self-assessment, self-awareness to be able to catch yourself um, and, and self-assess yourself in that manner. And, and that becomes valuable too, also um, from an emotional standpoint, because, um, you know, you probably hear, you always hear IQ, right? So the other thing is EQ, emotional intelligence. And it's being able to like assess yourself and know that, hey, especially when you're making these investments, am I getting emotional? Am I getting, you know, too carried away or are the things that I'm thinking, um, you know, this deal, am I getting attached to it right? <laughs> personally? Um, am I, you know, when the world's burning around you and, you know, people are selling, that's the time to buy, right? Everyone says that, but no one does it because they're emotionally caught in what's going on. Um, so the whole theme of self-awareness is, you know, taking that time to be intentional and um, self-analyze is one of the biggest things that I think, you know, as an investor will help you. And that goes for real estate, that goes for stocks, that goes for business or anything. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the last question, what is the best way for people in our audience to reach you if, if they want to get in touch? Uh, so email is the best. I'm unfortunately one of those people that lives in their inbox too often. So um, email is Brent, B-R-E-N-T at thinkmultifamily.com. Awesome. Well, we really do appreciate your time, Brent. Um, we'll definitely be in touch and uh, we'll definitely, um, yeah, I'm sure my audience took a lot from this. So like I said, thank you. All right. Thanks for your time, thank you Brent. so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly, where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you got value from this episode, we'd appreciate a good rating on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune into our next episode. Until next time, take care guys.